Good. Well, lovely to be together, everybody. Thank you for your warm welcome. And uh, from my side of things, uh, what I do when I travel with TMT is I sit in the van and I, I know I'm going somewhere, and then it's always sort of a wonderful journey, and it's wonderful to arrive and to be with you uh, wherever we are, and I'll look forward to the continuation of our time together. I should have prefaced that just briefly by saying I'm out from Ontario, so all of the lower mainland is wonderful and new, and the mountains are awesome, and the rivers are wonderful, but it is really God's people that brought me out here, actually. I teach uh, at Columbia Bible, and I see the Spirit forming young people, a heart for ministry, a love for God, and to be steadfast in the Word of God. And that, even more than the mountains and rivers, as wonderful as they are, uh, brings me a lot of joy. This morning, we are engaged in a sermon series of which I confess I'm just parachuting in here for one moment, and then uh, it will be picked up again uh, in what I assume is a more stable way. But I have enjoyed researching a little bit what sorts of things could we say about who Jesus is and the difference he has made in this world. And I, I just have to tell you, there are so many topics we could choose from, aren't there? Jesus has profoundly conditioned this world in the way that many of us, maybe even as we've been, in some cases, lifelong Christians, are not fully even aware of just yet. One thing I would like to alert your attention to, or perhaps even the spirit through the text this morning would alert our attention to, is the fact that Jesus calls us to put on Christian humility. Christian humility isn't a shamefulness. It's not a lowering yourself. It's not a compromise of what is true and what is taught in the scriptures, but it is a loving, caring regard, specifically sometimes for those who don't understand us, for those that maybe don't like us, for those who are confused about what exactly it is to be a person who calls themselves Christian. And in the text that we're going to look at today, we see this Christian humility that is close to the heart of God, embodied in the person of Jesus. And if there is a call from our text this morning, a message from the Spirit, perhaps it is that Jesus invites each one of us to put on that humility, to love others with a never-ending and selfless love that does not come from the heart of human people, but comes from the heart of God and is given to each one of us, children of God, by the Spirit as well. Before we speak about humility, I wanted to point out just one very, very th obvious thing that Jesus has done in our world. Uh, this morning, if you're like me, you got up with an alarm clock, and then you had your coffee, and you had your breakfast, and you made a choice to come to church today. And what we know to be true of people living in British Columbia is that many, and in fact most, don't make that same decision. You had this morning, I guess depending on your theology, but I'm just going to tell you, you had free will this morning. You didn't, you'll forgive me for saying this, you didn't strictly have to be here, but you chose to be here. There is something that is true of each one of us, a profound way in which Jesus has made a very significant difference in our life, is that he has given us his grace. At one certain point in our lives, each of us became aware there are patterns in our life that are not in keeping with the child of God. We call these things sin, and the Spirit came into our lives and convicted us of sin, and we realized that we could not be the people that God called us to be on our own, and the Spirit came and did a wonderful work in us. And our response 
the way that we have lived the Christian life in response is to be a people who are profoundly shaped and conditioned by the Word of God and the Spirit moving among us. What has Jesus done in our world in addition to humility? I think the evidence is in this room this morning. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that are profoundly different people than what we were when we came into this world, but we are claimed and we are bought with a price and we are no longer our own, but we belong to Jesus. And uh, here we are together to worship our Lord and Savior. Having said that though, let's look at the text that is in front of us today. We will read in a moment, not just yet, but we will read in a moment from John 8, and I'll be reading uh, verses 1 through to 11. If you have a Bible in front of you, you may notice that this particular section of John's gospel might be in italics, or depending on your translation, it might be in a footnote. Uh, In my particular translation, there are brackets around this particular text. And don't be worried or alarmed, everybody. This is still God's word to us. But I want to tell you why the text appears in the particular way that it does. The earliest manuscripts that we have of John's gospel, uh, so sort of 200s and a little bit earlier than that, actually don't include this particular story. It is the later manuscripts of John's gospel, so sort of around 300 and 350 and moving into 400, that include this story. And so the reason why you have sort of italics or brackets or footnotes around this particular story is that the people who have translated the scriptures into modern English for us just want to point out that that this is not John's specific language. This is some other author, and it is included in the book of John. Now, I want you to have confidence in the scriptures, everybody, in the fact that God talks to you through the scriptures, and we can have confidence in this particular text before us today as well. What we know to be true about the scriptures is that the time when the early church was compiling what exactly should go into the New Testament, the gospel of John as it is recorded today with this story in it was on the docket. And what did the early church say? Yes, this is scripture. It is historical. It is accurate. And critically for the early church, they felt that the spirit was speaking to them in an authoritative way through this text. First in, um, now there's no test on this, everybody, but I'm just a nerd and I'm going to tell you. First signs we see of the New Testament being codified in the way that we have it today is by a gentleman named Athanasius in 367 AD. He said, John's gospel as we have received it is the authoritative word of God. And then later on in a series of councils at Carthage from about 397 to 419, and a gentleman named St. Augustine presided over those councils. Once again, the New Testament as it, we have it today was affirmed by the church. This is true, reliable, authoritative. We hear the Spirit speak to us through these texts, and therefore they have become Scripture as well. What we think about this text is maybe perhaps even it was one of Luke's notes from his gospel. Uh, Luke was a physician, and if you know a thing or two about physicians, they love to take notes and they love to study things. And Luke's gospel in particular is a collection of eyewitness sources. And where did he get those eyewitness sources from? Well, Luke went around and he asked people, what was it like to follow Jesus? Where were you when this miracle happened? Where were you when he was on the cross? Can you help me to understand who Jesus is 
and the significance of his life. We think what most likely happened is somewhere along the lines, this story, which was originally in Luke's gospel, and we have very, very early manuscripts of this story after Luke 21, uh, somehow fell out of his gospel, but the church recognized that it was important for us to know this story about who Jesus is. And someone in some church in the early church was a tiny bit disorganized, and sometimes that happens in Christian community. We are a little tiny bit disorganized, and the story moved from Luke's gospel into John's gospel, and that's why it's in italics for you today, but it is no less the word of God for all of us together. Now, that may be more than you were bargaining on hearing, but um, I'm only here once, so I'm going to tell you one nerdy thing, and that's it, and now let's hear the word of God together. This is what the author, likely Luke, records. Verse 1, John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it is commanded that we should stone such persons. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up, and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replied. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declares. Go now and leave your life of sin. There are a few things that we can notice that are striking about this text that I'd like to bring to your attention. Essentially, this text is not explicitly about this woman who is caught in adultery. She is a key character in this text. But the primary dynamic that is going on in this text is between Jesus and these teachers of the law or these Pharisees who are not particularly keen on Jesus, his person, his message, his methods, his witness about the God the Father, and they are people that don't like him. What we see specifically in verse 6 of this text, uh, the author, perhaps Luke, says, those who were the teachers of the law and Pharisees were using questions as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. What has happened in this text is that the teachers of the law and Pharisees had a feeling about Jesus for which they had yet not have any substantial reasons not to like him. They just knew that they didn't like him. They just knew that they didn't understand him. And they knew that if they pressed him, surely that he would say something that they could use against him as well. They would be acting in what we would call bad faith. 
There are some people in this world that certainly have an openness to the message of Jesus. They are curious about who Jesus is, about the things that he does within our world. Some people are probably indifferent to the message of Jesus. They're not really, uh, it has never crossed their mind whether or not they should arrive at a church on Sunday morning. It's just not something that they think about. Uh, I noticed in the invitation to come here that there are also some people within our world that just don't like Jesus very much. And it's not that they have specific reasons for that conviction, but for whatever reason that is known to them, uh, they have a sense about Jesus and they are maybe threatened by him or maybe they are uh, painted into a corner by him or maybe they don't want to deal with their sin. And I confess to you this morning is that I cannot give you an account of why people don't like Jesus, but what I can do is I see within this text that has happened then And this text is something of a study of human nature, and we just know that there are people in our world today as well who for whatever reason, for whatever sense, they don't particularly care for Jesus. And when the opportunity arrives to critique the church or the Christians, uh, they will rise to the challenge as well. One thing we should say, uh, even as I just mentioned that, is that uh, there are things we as the Christian church have done that are not in keeping with God's call for us, even as we bear the name of Jesus. We certainly have hurt others in the past, and there needs to be, because we bear the name of Jesus, reconciliation for that. We should be appropriately humble and contrite, but there are also people, uh, regardless of what the church has done, who sort of have it out for Christians as well. Let's notice how Jesus chooses to engage in this dynamic. People have come to this uh, place where they're meeting, the place where Jesus is teaching, And their agenda is just strictly, we are going to catch Jesus in a trap, and then we're going to tell one another and other people beyond the group why Jesus is not to be uh, trusted or engaged or held in high esteem, and it would be best to do away with him in some way or another. When they start leveling sort of accusations or leading questions against Jesus, he stoops down and begins to write in the dirt. Scholars of this text have wondered for as long as scholars have existed, what on earth is Jesus writing in the dirt? And the truth is we don't know. But what is more significant about this is think of yourself as someone who is receiving a series of accusations or leading questions and someone intends to catch you in a trap. What would happen if you were to stoop down in front of them? That is a posture that doesn't seem to fit the intensity of the situation. It's not something that meets the accusations of the teachers of the law or the Pharisees that they are directing at Jesus, but he lowers his stature in front of them. And that is a very, very strange posture in our culture and our society, and it would be a very, very strange posture in the early, well, in in, in Jesus' time and Jesus' culture as well. We see something of Jesus's humility here, and it's not because he has nothing to say. We see later in the text that he has some very substantial things to say. It's not even a lessening of his message. He, at the end of our text, says something very clear about sin and how sin is not to be part of a human life and how God comes and gives us his grace in the midst of our sin. But we also see in this he adopts a posture that de-escalates the situation and essentially is a posture that shows care for a woman who is caught up in a series of events that really she did not want to be part of, that she is a pawn in this charade that is being perpetrated between the teachers of the law and Jesus himself. We see a picture 
of the character of God in the person of Jesus here, whereby the character of God in the person of Jesus is not threatened by the world around him. The person of God and the heart of God in the character of Jesus is not going to move his message. He clings to what is true, but nevertheless, he has this servant posture whereby he longs to preserve this woman, longs to de-escalate the situation, and longs to care even, I would say, for the religious leaders and the teachers of the law who don't know better and nevertheless are engaging in this line of questioning. Jesus's care and loving kindness is evidenced in this posture of lowering himself before those come to accuse him. Let's see how the story progresses. Even as Jesus lowers his posture before those who accuse him, uh, they don't relent. They're very persistent. They came with a task, and they want to have that task achieved. And so Jesus stands up, and he offers a very wise response. He says, those who are without sin may throw the first stone. And then what does he do once again? He is persistent in lowering himself before these accusations that are being leveled at him once again. Jesus once again is committed not to degrading the truth, but to being a person who embodies the servant and caring and everlasting loving kindness of God to those around him as well. One by one, those who have accused him saw his posture and didn't know how to respond. It was befuddling to them. They don't have rhythms and practices in their culture for how to respond to someone who has lowered himself in front of them, but nevertheless had said true things with authority and caught up in the midst of this, they realized they better go away and have a clear think about things before they choose to engage with uh, Jesus and his truth and his humility once again. Finally, in this passage, we see once everyone has gone away, Jesus turns to the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none, Lord. They have all gone away. And Jesus, once again, in his loving kindness and everlasting grace, says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin as well. Sometimes we may be tempted to conflate a posture of humility with a posture of being weak or being unsure. But we don't see that in the person of Jesus here. He is very clear about the purposes for which he came. He came to reveal the heart of God. He came to announce grace for each one of us. And he came to lead us in the ways everlasting. And even as he adopts a humble posture, his mission and his purpose and his truth are not obscured, but in fact they are highlighted by the way in which he stoops down in front of others. Let's interpret this text uh, with Scripture itself. In Philippians 2, Paul is going to be commenting on the character of Jesus and why it is so radical, so different, so unexpected, but nevertheless reveals the heart of God and reveals the fact that God's grace and God's truth is making all things new, including this woman caught in adultery and including you and I when the alarm went off this morning, we decided to come to church and worship our Lord and Savior together. In Philippians 2, and I'll read verses 5 and 6 and 7 here, this is what Paul says about the character of Christ that is radical, that is different, that is unexpected. He says this, In your relationships with one another, have this same mindset of Jesus Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather, and instead, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. We see something remarkable in this text as Jesus stoops down before his accusers that because he is in the form of God, he has the confidence, he has the poise, and he has the posture to act with a loving kindness in this situation, stooping down knowing that his message and his words are not being degraded, but in fact they are revealing the very heart of God, which is transforming lives around him. Scholars who have read Philippians 2 notice that in verse 6, Uh, The literal Greek would read something like this. Jesus, very nature of God, did not consider quality with God something to be used to his own advantage. It seems like there is a word or two missing there. And each translation of of our English Bible will add a few words there. One that I particularly like that my own translation doesn't afford us here this morning. Jesus, who because he is in the nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, but he took the form of a servant. It is a basic truth of the heart of God, of the person of God, of the character of God, that he is one who gives of himself for his creation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believe in him should not perish, but will, and this is the promise of the scriptures, have an everlasting life, which we are beginning even to live in this world and will continue to live in a future world as well. Jesus took this posture not in spite of being in the nature of God, but precisely because he was in the nature of God, and he knows God's humble, self-giving heart and acted in those capacities. Finally, then, what should we do with the text before us? Perhaps it is the case that the Spirit is speaking to me. Well, the Spirit is speaking to me as I prepared this week, but perhaps the Spirit is speaking to you. Wouldn't it be nice to put our adversaries in their place, everybody? Do you ever think about how wonderful and rewarding and cathartic that would be? But the reality is that Jesus invites us to live a very different logic, a very strange logic, a very unanticipated logic that is not of a human creation, but it flows from the heart of God, who because he is in the nature of God, does not consider something, equality with God, something to be grasped, but adopts the posture of a humble, of a caring, and a loving kindness of a servant as well. The Spirit speaking to me this week, and perhaps the Spirit speaking to you, invites you to inhabit this humility which is strange and unusual and not something that is generally practiced beyond the walls of the church, but to do it in the name of Jesus and precisely to show his everlasting love and his marvelous and wonderful and hard-to-grasp grace that has nevertheless surrounded each one of us. Finally, I want to uh, uh, respond to the, the actual question that I'm supposed to answer within our sermon as well. What difference has Jesus made in our world? People who study history, and I confess I get a little bit bored when I read those people, but it's my job, so I do anyhow. People that study history notice something very, very interesting before the time of Jesus and after the time of Jesus. In the writings on political, whatever politicians do, in the writings on leadership, in the writings on people who have influence in society, before Jesus, we do not tend to see this type of servanthood, self-giving, caring, expected of leaders. 
uh, in people like Plato and Aristotle, who would have shaped the Greek world into which Jesus uh, was born, into which the New Testament arrived. Uh, Plato has four cardinal virtues, and to be a good leader for Plato is to be someone who is courageous and temperance and has good wisdom and, and does the right things at the right time in an inspiring and powerful way. Uh, Aristotle has 18 virtues, and I'll not list them for you. Uh, none of them, though, are Christ-like humility. The closest that Aristotle comes to this Christ-like humility is a virtue called magnanimity, which is basically like having a lot of confidence in your power and position so that you can be generous with others. But after Jesus comes, we see this virtue of humility, which is distinctly a Christian virtue. Nobody else has come up with this. And this is one of the unique contributions of the New Testament. This is one of the unique contributions, in fact, of Jesus himself to a world beyond himself. Historians have studied uh, leaders and political figures since Jesus, and it has been noticed that when they are deemed to be good, they have this type of pastoral quality to them, where they are humble, where they are caring, where they say things that are true, but they say things that are true because they sincerely love those that they serve. And historians have decided that the way in which this posture of being within the world uh, has come into the world is not through human ingenuity or being people that innovate the practice of leadership, but it has in fact been the contribution of Jesus that has shaped what we define a good leader by from, you know, the time of Jesus through the Middle Evil Ages, to the development of democracy, and even to today as we, um, I guess, critique sometimes or talk about, talk about our political leaders. What makes a good political leader, everybody? Someone who serves their constituency, someone who is humble, someone who is concerned with the needs of the constituency as well. And where did they get that posture? We can trace a line back to the very person and very work of Jesus, and we see in our text today one example of that as well. What is perhaps the Spirit speaking to all of us today, myself included? Be people that put on this character and posture of Jesus, his unique gift to the world, his unique disclosure of the heart of God. Be one, even though sometimes we are misunderstood or we confuse people or sometimes maybe even where we are reviled, remember that Jesus cares so much for the world that he comes into the world to save the world, and whoever wants to hear that message is welcomed into his family, into his new creation, and to be a witness of that is a wonderful privilege and a wonderful honor as well. Amen. I'd love to pray for you, and then whatever's happening next will happen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your word that comes to us right where we are and right as we are. We pray that you would shape a heart in each one of us to be a person that magnifies the character and longing of God in this world. Jesus, as we exist in places where sometimes people misunderstand us or are not very thrilled with us, we pray that we be people who are able to show your steadfast, committed loving kindness to those in a world around us who need to hear. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.